Welcome to The Disappearing Mind, a unique podcast helping you find clarity and support along your dementia journey. Now, join National Dementia Trainer and Coach Don Platt for an all-new episode. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Dawn Platt, and I have a special podcast for you today. I think that you're going to find it very interesting. And I was just talking before the show started with my guest today and said, I don't think it's very often that people get to sit down with a neurologist and ask some questions. So I am very happy today to have my guest with me, Dr. Michelle Boudreaux. She is a fellowship trained neurologist who is board certified in psychiatry, neurology, and clinical neurophysiology. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Boudreaux. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. Yes, thank you. And thanks for coming to us. So shortly after the holiday, we've been talking about putting this show together for a time and she's very busy. I'm so glad today on the podcast, we're going to get to kind of dig in deep uh, to the importance, but tell us a little bit about your practice, how you got into neurology. Just tell us about you. Sure. I was always interested in neurology ever since I was a young uh, child, actually. There were a lot of neurological conditions in my family, um, including dementia, and I became very interested in that. So when I was a preteen, I started reading books on neurology and different neurological conditions. Eventually, I went to college and then decided to uh, proceed with my master's degree and then uh, went to medical school. And while in medical school, I tried to keep an open mind about all different specialties and disciplines, but everything always came back to neurology for me. It was always um, a huge interest for me, so I decided that I should listen to my calling and become a neurologist. So at that point, I applied for a residency and completed my residency at UConn in uh, Farmington, Connecticut. And after that, I completed a fellowship in Buffalo for clinical neurophysiology. And then after that, I was in primarily outpatient practice with a little bit of inpatient practice for several years at a few hospitals in Connecticut. And then about five to six years ago, I joined a telemedicine company and have been with them since then. So you're available by telemedicine or people could reach you through that source no matter where they lived? So uh, right now we service hospitals, um, about Uh 300 hospitals in the nation. So if um, a patient comes to one of these hospitals that we service, then they may get me on screen depending on if I'm on call that day or night. Okay, great. So let's elaborate a little bit on the role of a neurologist. And I want to ask this question because it's so important to me. It's something I talk about constantly on the podcast and with families I coach, families I've worked with, patients I've worked with over the years. Why is consulting with a neurologist crucial to someone who may be suspecting that they have dementia? A neurologist is trained in conditions that affect the brain, as well as the spinal cord and the nerves. In the case of dementia, the brain is affected and it typically is due to a degenerative condition of the brain. So a neurologist is specially trained to evaluate patients who have either cognitive or other memory complaints to determine the cause of these complaints. 
And sometimes the cause can be due to dementia, but there's also other conditions that can mimic dementia. And that's why the role of the neurologist is crucial because we can help weed that out a little bit better to determine whether the patient that we're seeing is truly suffering from dementia or if it could be another condition that's mimicking dementia. And then depending on the cause for the memory and cognitive complaints, we can figure out which treatments would be the best for that patient. And sometimes medications can be prescribed in order to improve or slow the progression of memory loss or cognitive decline, especially if it's due to an underlying dementia. Ultimately, consulting a neurologist is important because early diagnosis and treatment of dementia can sometimes help slow the progression of the dementia manage the symptoms, and in turn, improve the quality of life for the patient as well as the caregiver. Absolutely. And I'm going to get ahead of myself. You're going to find that because I have so many questions I want to ask you. But, you know, I've been doing this. I've been working in geriatrics for well over 35 years and primarily with dementia in that in the Southwest Florida and Florida regions. But One of the things that I find true or I've seen over time, and I'm always kind of pushing the envelope on this with people that I come in contact with, is that oftentimes a general practitioner or a doctor you've gone to, the family doctor you've had for a number of years will just say something really basic, oh, well, they just have dementia. And a lot of times that used to seem like it was okay. But now today, we're seeing so many different types of dementia and so many different symptoms. Stress to me why it's so important, why there are times when you can treat early or offer some solutions. Why should a family push their general practitioner to have more testing done? Sometimes people can have memory loss or cognitive changes that are unrelated to dementia. And if that's the case, it could be something that's reversible. So getting the extra lab testing is important because it can look for reversible causes of memory loss or cognitive complaints. In addition, there are many different types of dementia. And the treatment for each type of dementia may be different than another type. And if you don't know which type you're treating, you could be prescribing the incorrect medication for that patient. And in some cases, that can actually worsen the symptoms or just not help with the symptoms at all. So getting more detailed testing, such as imaging of the brain or cognitive testing, such as neuropsychological testing, are key points to do because it can help us determine what type of dementia is this. And then thus, how do we treat this dementia? What's the most appropriate treatment? And get them treatment early in the stages because the sooner we treat, the better quality of life the patient will have. So what are the most prevalent types of dementia that you see and treat? And how do they differ in the way you treat them clinically? Sure. So Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause of dementia, and that's what I see most in my practice, actually accounts for up to 80% of cases of dementia. And they say that if someone's over the age of 85, they have a very high likelihood of having this type of dementia in the United States. And this is characterized by a buildup of plaques called amyloid plaques and tangles called tau tangles in the brain. And then when you get the buildup of these in the brain, 
it leads to death of brain cells. And in these patients, we typically see memory loss as an early sign, and that's the most prominent symptom. This includes forgetting recently learned information is very common in these patients. Other symptoms we see with them is they tend to get confused about the time, what time it is or where they are. They have difficulty completing familiar tasks, and sometimes they can have changes in mood or personality. This type of dementia usually progresses slowly, but does tend to worsen over time, typically over several years. Another type of dementia that I do see often in my practice is vascular dementia. And this often occurs after someone has a stroke. And it's actually caused by damage to the blood vessels that supply blood to the brain. And the impaired blood flow can lead to brain cell death. And this often results in impaired judgment or inability to make decisions, to plan, or to organize. You can see some memory loss in this, but it's not as common as with Alzheimer's disease. But the symptoms do tend to vary based on where the blood flow is interrupted in the brain. And the vascular dementia tends to have a more abrupt progression than Alzheimer's disease. And it tends to occur more in a stepwise pattern where symptoms suddenly worsen due to small strokes or other changes in brain blood flow. And then Lewy body dementia can also be seen, and this is actually due to abnormal protein deposits known as Lewy bodies in brain cells. And it shares some symptoms similar to Parkinson's disease as well as Alzheimer's disease. So you primarily see memory issues as well as problems with movement. These patients also tend to have visual hallucinations and problems with focusing and problems with attention. And at times, you can also see some Parkinson's disease-like movements, such as slow movements or tremors or rigid muscles with this. And it typically progresses at a similar rate to Alzheimer's. But once again, we tend to see more visual hallucinations and movement abnormalities with this type of dementia. And then frontotemporal dementia is a type of dementia that primarily affects the frontal and temporal lobes of the brain. And in turn, by doing so, it changes personality and behavior and can also affect language in certain individuals. These people tend to start having these issues at a younger age, somewhere in their 40s to 60s, whereas the other dementias tend to be at an older age. There's often a decline in social awareness and inhibitions. There could be some emotional blunting with this. And these tend to progress more rapidly. However, sometimes we will see it progress more slowly, but typically it's a rapid progression, but it does depend on the individual and the specific subtype of this. And then there's mixed dementia, where people may have more than one form of dementia. And depending on which forms they have, that kind of dictates how they typically present. The treatment for these can be different depending on the type of dementia. We have specific medications that we use for Alzheimer's disease because they have been studied more with Alzheimer's disease or mild cognitive impairment, which sometimes is a precursor to Alzheimer's disease. Whereas vascular dementia, 
because it's due to impaired blood flow due to damage to blood vessels, we tend to try to treat the underlying causes for that, such as people who have high blood pressure or high cholesterol or diabetes. We want to manage those conditions better to prevent further progression of that disease. And then once again, the Lewy body dementia and the frontotemporal dementia, they have specific medications that are tailored more toward them as well. And then with the mixed dementias, it can get a little tricky because if you have more than one type of dementia, you have to be careful with some of these medications because one medication that may help one type of dementia may exacerbate or worsen another type. Okay. So that was a lot. Yes, that was a lot. (laughs) So typically, well, it's just a vast field. So I'm so glad you came on today to discuss it. But typically, it is thought that there are over 120 types of dementia. With that, I know you've been in practice for a while, so you're not new at this. You're not a novice. But I know from my career, I have seen a lot of changes in the type of clients in the memory care communities that I oversee across the United States. I have seen a lot of changes in that client, not only age-wise, but types of dementia, mixed dementias with psychosis. Have you seen a change in your practice over the years? And can you comment on why that might be or what we might be seeing now and in the future? So I have seen a change in this. When I first started practicing, it was mainly Alzheimer's disease patients. However, now I am seeing a lot of different types of dementia as well. I'm not sure if we entirely know the reason for this. It could be because of environmental factors. It could be diet changes that we're seeing in people. Nutritional status of people can predispose them to, you know, certain types of dementia over others. And the amount of exercise someone may get sometimes can increase the risk of developing dementia as well. And then also the way we are stimulated cognitively is different. And I wonder if there may be an association with that before the internet and AI became readily available, we as humans had to kind of rely on ourselves to figure things out. And so that involves some cognitive exercise. But when you have the internet and calculators and AI now available to us, we're not stimulating the brain as much. And so I wonder if this could be contributing not only to the development of dementia, but possibly the progression as well. Great point. That's a really great point. So you talked about some of the significance of a neurological examination, but what does that course look like, not only for the individual coming to you for diagnosis, but are there things that neurologically you could recommend for, let's say, someone who has a family history who's young and worried about it? Are there some new tests and new blood work and things that can be done precognitively for brain health? those sorts of things. So what does that course look like of neurological examination? Yeah. So when a patient comes to me with cognitive complaints or memory problems, there is somewhat of a methodical course that I personally take. And I think most neurologists do take as well. First, we talk to them about the specific complaints that they're having. And that can kind of lead us in one direction versus another direction. And then we perform a thorough neurological exam. And first, this consists of a physical exam. And the reason why we do the physical neurological exam, such as checking strength and sensation and seeing how the nerves are working, is because we're looking for anything on exam, anything subtle that may help us distinguish one diagnosis over the other. 
for instance, if the person is having cognitive complaints and we see that they're weak on one side of the body, that may raise the suspicion that maybe they've had a stroke in the past and this possibly could be a vascular dementia. And then after we do this, cognitive testing is important. And there are some bedside cognitive tests that we can do. The traditional one is the mini mental uh, status exam. However, I tend to do um, the Montreal cognitive assessment. And the reason why I do that one is because it's more specific toward Alzheimer's disease. And because the majority of dementia patients have that type of dementia, I like that test because it really focuses more on that and can help raise my suspicion as to whether that's you know, what's causing the symptoms or not. And then at that point, I typically will order blood work to look for any reversible causes of memory loss or cognitive problems in the blood, such as looking for a thyroid problem or a B12 deficiency, looking for certain infections as well. All that could be reversible if you have a problem with any of those things. And then I do often recommend imaging of the brain because once again, that can help me determine, okay, was there a prior stroke? So could this be a vascular dementia? Is there anything else on the scan that may increase my suspicion that something else is going on other than a dementia? And then if necessary, sometimes I will recommend neuropsychological testing, especially if it's in the early stages, because that's really at this point the gold standard as far as trying to figure out which type of dementia the patient has. So let's talk about some traditional treatments and then maybe some other things that you might recommend as a neurologist in managing dementia. So you've talked about the testing. We're going to get into medication in just a moment here, but you have a patient. You've taken them through the testing. You've diagnosed them with Alzheimer's type dementia or whatever the case might be. Are there other things outside of medication and just general treatment that you recommend? Do you recommend any particular brain health or brain programming or what do people do? The reason that this question has been prompted in my mind is I interviewed a early onset MCI, 58 years old, diagnosed in 2018. And one of the things that was shocking to her is that she got a diagnosis of dementia and then MCI. There was nothing else. And so she went, she looked at the medications. And so she's just started this whole brain routine, increased her exercise. In your perspective, what other cognitive things could be done, especially early onset, to either promote cognitive well-being or maintain cognitive reserve? I think that's a very important point because I think in the past, many physicians have been more focused on medication, but we have found recently that actually using a multifactorial or a multifaceted approach is actually the most beneficial. So not only do you have the medication piece, but you have the non-pharmacological pieces as well, which includes, as you mentioned, some cognitive exercises. And I think that's extremely important, especially in early stages. So activities that engage the brain can actually help maintain cognitive function when you're in the early stages of dementia or if, when you have mild cognitive impairment. These can include puzzles or certain memory exercises, brain games, interactive games. Also, music and art therapy can not only enhance the quality of life, but can actually help manage some of the behavioral symptoms that we do see with dementia. And then the other aspect that I like to think of is exercising. 
When we participate in regular physical activity, this not only helps maintain muscle strength and mobility, but it also helps cardiovascular health. And all of this can actually have a positive impact on cognitive functioning. A lot of times I will recommend that these patients participate in walking or swimming or even group exercises because that can bring kind of a social aspect to things as well. And maintaining social interactions is also important. And we have found that helps improve cognitive functioning and may actually slow some progression in these patients. And then another aspect I also tend to look at is diet and nutrition. A balanced diet that's rich in fruits and vegetables, whole grains, and omega-3 fatty acids, which is often found in fish, is recommended. The Mediterranean diet is excellent for patients who have dementia. And then making sure that these people are adequately hydrated because that can actually worsen cognitive function as well. Okay. So I have another question I want to get your opinion on. And I've been seeing this. There's a trend and I oversee about 74 memory care communities across the United States. So I have a little bit of history and I get a little bit of information. I get to participate, but over, I want to say the last couple of years, maybe prior to, we have started getting a lot more Vietnam veterans We have started getting a lot earlier onset of mixed diagnosis with psychosis. And many times, and this is a recent trend that I've seen, you hit on it, but I want to kind of get into it. So I'm a big proponent of multiple cognitive testing tools. And it's just historical. There's a reason for that. I think that if we don't assess well, we're not going to be able to see and write a good care plan. But With some of these younger people and with specifically some Vietnam veterans I'm seeing with post-traumatic stress syndrome, they score very high on the mini mental, but in the MOCA or the Montreal, they do not score as well. I just want your opinion on that. Is that we have a different client? Is that they're more educated? Why is that? Why are we seeing differing results with assessments that we've used for years? I think the jury's still out on that. It could be multiple factors. Once again, it could be environmental or societal factors that I had uh, previously mentioned. Also, it's important to remember that the mini mental status examination was the most widely used exam when assessing cognitive function in the past. When I first started my residency, that's when the MOCA became a little bit more prominent. And the MOCA really concentrates more on assessing executive functioning rather than just purely memory. And the executive functioning is a higher order function of the brain. People may be able to navigate simple memory tasks, but when it comes to the higher functioning of the brain, such as executive functioning or planning, they tend to falter earlier in the course of dementia or certain dementias with that. That's very interesting. Thank you for explaining that because it's a topic that comes up a lot. So let's talk a little bit about some the latest advancements in medications and treatment. So tell us what's happening with that. Are you using some of these new medications? What are they? And are you getting any good results? I think at this point, the landscape for the new medications, we're primarily focusing on the monoclonal antibodies. One of the most recently approved ones is lacanumab. And 
most of these monoclonal antibodies, whether it's lecanemab or any of the others, it actually targets the amyloid plaques in the brain that we see in Alzheimer's disease. Most of these medications were tested in patients who had mild cognitive impairment or early mild Alzheimer's disease. The studies have shown that it does slow cognitive decline to some degrees. However, there are some considerations that we have to keep in mind with these medications because most of them are IV medications. And they can have a potential side effect of swelling in the brain or bleeding in the brain. So because of that, we have to do regular monitoring of the brain with scans to make sure that this is not occurring. And then we can also test for a genetic test called the APOE4 test because this genetic predisposition toward Alzheimer's disease can also increase the potential for the side effects with these medications of the brain swelling and the bleeding. And because these are newer medications, the long-term consequences and safety profile and long-term efficacy as well is still not 100% known. So what are the most common medications that you use in treating your patients? The most common medications that I use are the cholinesterase inhibitors. And these have been out for a while. And basically, they're approved for mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. And they help manage the symptoms by affecting certain chemicals in the brain that are involved in carrying messages within the brain. And these drugs include denipazil, rivastigmine, galantamine. And what they do is they decrease the breakdown of acetylcholine in the brain. And we believe that by doing so, it helps slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease. There's also a medication called a memantine, and this is different from the cholinesterase inhibitors because it actually blocks a different neurotransmitter called glutamate, and it blocks it through a certain receptor in the brain. And this one is used more for moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease. Because it works differently than the cholinesterase inhibitors, it can actually be used in combination with them as well. So what I normally see in a memory care setting over time is that oftentimes many of our dementia residents will be treated three-tier, depending on what type of dementia they have, what their symptoms are. But a lot of times we will see they're treated for depression at some point throughout the stage of their dementia, as well as some sort of cognitive treatment, if it's still appropriate. And then potentially something for anxiety. Is that something normal that you might see? Is that how you proceed? Or do you just treat the cognition? What does that look like in your practice? No, I agree. I think that treating all aspects or all symptoms of the dementia are important. So not only treating the cognitive aspect with the medications I previously specified, but any associated symptoms such as depression or anxiety or even agitation or hallucinations can be treated with antipsychotics. Oftentimes, we will see sleep disturbances in patients who have dementia. And so there's certain medications that we can use for sleep disturbances as well. And once again, this is more of a multifaceted approach that I typically use in my practice because, once again, dementia is very complicated and it's a very complex disorder and it affects so many areas of life. So just focusing on one problem of 
dementia usually doesn't suffice. Normally, you have to look at every other associated symptom and try to address those as well. When I coach families, one of the things that I hear from them very frequently is that they're a little inhibited in asking for different facets. People assume that depression is part of the disease. They assume that insomnia is part of the disease and they assume that anxiety is part of the disease. But we see so many different symptoms or lack of them through individuals every day. So what would you say to a family member who just feels like that just comes with it? That's just part of it. How would you advise them? Well, I would say that we do often see that associated with the dementia, but that it's important to talk about that with the treating physician because there are certain treatments, not only medication, but other therapies that we can consider doing to help with those symptoms, thus improve the quality of life for the individual. Absolutely. And I'd like to say to the audience that there's very much a difference of that fear. Obviously, we don't want to see your loved one over-medicated, but under-medicated can be just as dangerous and also doesn't provide quality of life for you or your loved one. And that's why seeing a neurologist, having a professional treat your loved one is going to make all the difference for you throughout the course of this journey. And so that's why Dr. Boudreaux is on here today. There are going to be things that I believe she would say, and most neurologists would say, maybe we can't treat that anymore. It's not effective anymore, but certainly that's a professional call and not one where we should just assume that what's going on in our home or what's going on with our loved one is just something that can't be treated. It's just the way it is because that simply is not the truth. And each person is an individual. So the value of a neurologist is so important to you in the treatment of your family members. So what challenges and opportunities are neurologists seeing as we're facing this increasing number of dementia? What, what do you see the landscape like in the future of dementia in the United States of America? We face several challenges, and the reason for this is because, as I previously mentioned, the disease is very complex, and we do have limitations regarding the current treatments. We don't have a cure for this. We have treatments that may help slow the progression, but we can't stop the progression. We also have treatments that may help with some of the associated symptoms, but once again, it's not a cure. And then there's also broader healthcare system issues that we see as well. There's ethical issues as well that we see. There's issues with the patient making decisions sometimes. We have to determine, do they have the capacity to make decisions? Can they drive? And living situations can also be complex. Having those conversations with the patients are important, especially in the early stages before they lack capacity to do so. And then, as I previously mentioned, you know, with the healthcare limitations, we're seeing a growing number of patients who have dementia. The concern is that our healthcare system adequately equipped to handle these increasing numbers. And there's questions too, as how do we address any disparities that we have, like in the access to the care and treatment, because not everybody has access to care and treatment for dementia. Absolutely. And that's a really good point. Treatment is not the same across the United States. So people that live in smaller towns and rural areas may not have access 
to the type of treatment that people that live in larger metropolitan areas may have access to. But are there any referrals that you tend to make or any holistic approaches that you could suggest outside of your practice and the medical side? Do you use holistic approaches or referrals? I do. My doctorate is a DO, so I'm a doctor of osteopathy. I was trained to use a more holistic approach to my patients. Once again, this includes cognitive stimulation, which sometimes cognitive stimulation therapy sessions can help improve cognitive function and quality of life. As I mentioned before, recommending physical exercise, certain diet and nutrition factors, social engagement as well. I tend to recommend group activities, social outings, and then addressing the mental health issue and stress management can also help these patients. So I often recommend meditation or yoga, mindfulness techniques. And then if it's a mental health issue like depression or anxiety, seeking professional help for those psychiatric comorbidities is important as well. And then with the sleep aspect, recommending good sleep hygiene is important. And the reason is because poor sleep patterns can actually affect cognitive help. So making sure they're on a regular sleep routine or addressing any sleep disturbances. And then recreational activities that I previously mentioned, like art, music, or any other creative activities that that person may specifically be interested in. And then acupuncture can be beneficial for some people, as well as like aromatherapy. But I do want to note that it's important before you seek those out to consult a healthcare provider to make sure that it's safe for the situation that you're in and won't interfere with any other treatments. Absolutely. I'm a huge proponent in the therapeutic approach for my clients and in our programs. We use that. So are there any stories or great outcomes or quality of life stories that you would like to share with our audience? I, I know that we always talk about the disease and it, even in support groups, you're always talking about maybe the negative. What are some of the positive things that you see in the quality of life of your patients and why you do what you do every day? I remember a specific story about a patient with dementia that I saw early in my training and the patient had Alzheimer's disease. The patient had a lot of apathy, wasn't very engaged, but when he was actually exposed to social encounters more frequently, he actually started coming out of his shell and started showing some improvement in his symptoms and became more interactive, happier, was smiling more. And so I think it really highlights the importance of making sure that we look at other aspects of treatment for these patients, especially the social aspect. I think increasing social activities in these patients can have a huge benefit for them and can improve their quality of life. And it was just amazing to see this patient go from just slumped in a chair, head down like that, not interacting to smiling and reaching out to give a high five to somebody and interacting more. And you could tell they were just happier. Absolutely. I love that. Those are great stories. And that's what really makes a difference in our journey is looking for the quality things in life. So as we're recording this podcast today, we are just have past Thanksgiving and we are going into the Hanukkah season. We're going into Christmas and this can be a particularly challenging time for families with a loved one with dementia or for those with dementia. So 
from your perspective, I've done a whole series on navigating the holidays and how you do that. Is there anything that you would advise your families as we're looking at this? I know sometimes we set our expectations a little high on our loved ones and they're not able to do all the things they did in the past. They're not always able to navigate the holidays like we used to. We need to slow down a little bit and enjoy maybe uh, a few of those things. But how about you, Dr. Boudreau? Do you have any advice for families who have a loved one with dementia going into the holidays? Yeah, so the holidays definitely can be challenging with somebody who has a family member with dementia. And I think that, like you said, having unrealistic expectations sometimes make it more difficult. I think just enjoying time with that family member, being patient and calm with them, but interacting with them as well is important and will make the holidays more pleasant. And then obviously the safety measures, you make sure you have a safe, supportive environment, try to reduce any chaos that they may find distressing, and also try to prevent anything that may be detrimental in the environment, such as things lying around on the floor. You don't want them to trip because any kind of injury could actually exacerbate the dementia as well. But ultimately, just relax, try to stay calm and patient and enjoy them and interact with them. And hopefully with the social interaction, like my prior patient, hopefully they will come out of their shell and enjoy the day as well. Absolutely. Great advice. One more question before we wrap up the podcast today. So for families out there that we have stressed the importance of having a neurologist, especially if you're suspecting dementia, how valuable that's going to be to the course of your journey. How does someone find a good neurologist? How would one go about doing that? So I'm a big fan of word of mouth and referrals. I think that the primary care physician is an excellent resource to finding a good neurologist because they're aware of who's in the area and who may specialize, especially in dementia. Also looking toward other friends and family members, extended family members who may be dealing with caregiving for a person with dementia, they may be able to help you find a good neurologist that maybe they're seeing as well. I know that the Alzheimer's Association has a website. I haven't looked on there if they have a list of neurologists as well, but I would be surprised if they didn't. So that might be another resource to look into. Absolutely. Dr. Michelle Boudreau, thank you for being on the podcast today. Your knowledge is invaluable to our listeners. And I hope that going into the holidays, you and your family have a safe and wonderful holiday. And thank you for joining us. To the audience, I just want to say I hope something you've heard today has been beneficial to you or someone that you know, either now or in the future. Please stay tuned, listen to the podcast, reach out to our resource pages, and until next time, make it a memorable day. Thank you for joining us for the Disappearing Mind podcast. We hope it's helped you find clarity and support along your journey. Be sure to subscribe to never miss an episode, visit our website to suggest future topics, and share the podcast with friends and family.